it was always part of the plan to put a brewery in, but for many years it, it was just a plan. It's 100% acquisition of Green Beacon. No, we had a chat with everybody. Anyone would have seen this coming a mile away. It's the passion and the, the dedication to beer and brewing. Oh, yeah. That's super simple and direct question. It's always fun to get to speak about beer. And that's just what we're here to do, talk about beer. And this week I meet Peter Howes, who, for want of a better description, is the patriarch of the Howes family, which owns Brisbane's Newstead Brewing. Newstead Brewing was one of the very early arrivals on the Brisbane good beer scene. And it was the first of those to really do the food and hospitality side of the business well in the city. While brewer Mark Howes was the face of the business, and hugely active in the craft beer scene as a prolific collaborator with other breweries, the business has always been described as a family-owned enterprise, with the funding of the brewery coming from the sale of a very successful workforce analytics and workforce planning business that Peter started way back in the 80s. As an outside observer, I've watched as the business has grown and expanded to a second production brewery and faced a lot of the challenges that expanding pioneering breweries have also faced. There has recently been some changes in senior staff, and Peter joined the business in a more hands-on role, and Mark has founded a new brand, Working Title Bruco. All in all, it sounded like there was a lot to discuss with Peter, and also a lot to learn about business, and how the world of brewing differs from other business sectors that Peter has been involved in. It's a great chat, and I hope you enjoyed it just as much as I did. Peter House, welcome to Beer as a Conversation. Thank you, Matt. The House name, uh, anyone who knows the Brisbane beer scene and Newstead particularly, Newstead Brewing um, particularly, would know the House name from Mark, who, who was the founder. But uh, you're the, the patriarch of the, the, the family is the best way to do it? or Well, I think I must probably reserve that phrase for my wife. But, um, <laughs> I think that you know we are a Brisbane family. We're now into our fourth generation of houses who live in Brisbane, yes. Now, tell me, because Mark was obviously the... Now, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to get this out here so I don't have to sort of uh, keep second-guessing myself because uh, uh, there's obviously a family brewery. And uh, as an outsider, Mark has always been the um, founder or the or the face of the brewery and you've stepped back into it. So um, is it okay that I refer to Mark as the founder? Yeah, absolutely. He was, yep. Mark is the founder. <laughs> he was a founder. I, I, I guess and, Mark, was... and Mark is a director and yep. will be continuing as a director. In fact, all four members members of the family are all directors of Newstead. Well, and, and that's why I was uh, wondering, because I knew that it was a family business yes. and I didn't want to sort of uh, spark any family discussions over, over the, the, the dinner table about, no. oh, you said you were the founder or he said no, you were the No, it works very well. Like <laughs> in our family, my wife is a chartered accountant and uh, is a director and secretary. Uh, my background's in management. Um, I was a lecturer at uh, what was then the Queensland Institute of Technology, now QUT, I spent uh, eight years on academic staff there before leaving in 1981 to set up my own consulting software business. Um, our daughter has a double degree in law and business, and Mark has a double degree in, in marketing and science. Both, both of my kids got first-class honours. Mark went on and did a PhD. You sound like a very proud father. Yes, I am. <laughs> I certainly am. This is really a podcast about the business of beer more so than the, the, the liquid quite often. Yep. And uh, I'm fascinated 
um, in the stories of how people get into business. And we can actually trace yours back. As you said, you were an academic and got into the software um, business. Tell me about that process. Well, from my undergraduate days, I always wanted to just become an academic. And I did. In I graduated from QIT in 1972. And not, I immediately started lecturing part-time while doing my MBA. Uh, in 1976, I, I became a full-time academic at what was then QIT. Um, you know, I was 26 years of age at the time. By the time I got to 31, I did my sabbatical with BP in Melbourne for a year, setting up their workforce planning processes, which um, in those days didn't exist in most large companies. So, so what was your studies in? In my professional background is workforce analytics and yep. workforce planning. Okay. So I did analytics on the workforce of large companies. And they were companies employed between 1,000 people in Australia and um, you know 800,000 people in North America and Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's my background. So certainly not beer, but I've had 40 years of running my own um, consulting software business. I am always in awe of somebody. I'm an accidental business person. I was a, a journalist with a passion of beer that in, in the early days of blogging um, wrote about it because I was writing for any magazine that would publish and that I wanted to say a lot more than there were magazines to publish it in. So I thought, do it myself. And everything that I've done since then has almost been accidental business growth. And now I've got this little business. I'm always in awe of anybody that not just starts a business, but drives it to, to growth as uh, as your HR business did. Was there an entrepreneurial element to your personality or to your interest? Or I personally don't call it entrepreneurial, although that's flavor of the month, you know. But I, I'm a driven person, you know, mm-hmm. for the last uh, 50 years, you know, I've worked on average 70-hour weeks. Um, now I cut back to about a 50-hour week. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, I've been driven. I, when I left an academic career to start my own consulting business, I had zero expectation it would ever grow outside of Brisbane. Uh, but these things evolve over time. Like within three years of starting, I, I did a joint venture with BHP to build some HRIS systems for them. Uh, when I sold my business in 2010... 80% of our revenue was outside Australia and 98% of our revenue was outside of Queensland. So mm-hmm. we certainly, while our base was here in Brisbane at Milton, above the existing brewery at Milton, we were always driven by growth, both initially growth in Australia and then growth into North America and Europe. Sometimes good business, sometimes management and sometimes good luck can wear the same suit of clothes, if, if you know what I mean. How, how important was the timing of you getting started um, with, with a, a you know, software business for HR? Oh, look, I think timing was, you know, not unimportant. Um, when we started, uh, you know, PCs were just starting. Yes. In fact, we started before IBM released their first PC. Okay. So we had a CPM operating system. That in 1981, when we bought this little computer, cost us $10,000 in 1981 dollars. At that stage, really, there was only mini computers like Wang Digital, etc., mm-hmm. and mainframes. And you know, I was so naive, naive at the time. I had no idea how big IBM were, and how I shouldn't be able to do what I <laughs> did. But I, I guess 
that's one of the things, again, you'll hear me say fascinate a lot because that's what drives my interest in the industry is the fascination. But to me, there seems a little bit of a parallel between craft beer then and software in that you were an early mover. Computers were only starting to become personal um, in the face of the, the the big juggernauts, and there was an opportunity that presented itself. Is is, is how it sounds to me. And Matt, that's correct. I would say there's a lot of parallels in my career and craft brewing. So, for example, while we started in in HRI systems, uh, we moved into building software for analytics, and I and then we moved into benchmarking. I would say that for you know. Most of the 30 years when I had my own business, we would be spending 70% of our time educating the market as to why they needed what we did and 5% selling what we actually did. You know, like it was people didn't know what they didn't know about the analytics of the workforce of organisations. So education was the fundamental component of our sales process. That's very much what it was for craft beer as well. What makes it different. Exactly. You, you were very fortunate, um, you know, Mark has uh, you know, explained very well the, the, the history and that the Newstead was conceived because I, I think you said that in 2010 you fully sold out of the business. That's right. In 2010 I sold my business to an American company called Success Factors and I was, you know, part of the contract was I had to work from, for two years. 18 months um, after I sold, they were acquired by SAP. So then I was working for SAP and I stayed at um, SAP for another eight years because I just loved what I was doing. So <laughs> I based myself in London for most of that time and I was working predominantly out of London for the last um, four years before we sold our business. And we were, you know, I, I really was in a great role where I just shared my vision for workforce analytics with large corporations, predominantly in North America and Europe. So that's why I used London as a base and it also allowed me to watch a lot of rugby. A- am I right in saying that it was the, the, the sale of that business that essentially oh, funded absolutely. the start of... Yeah, um, it, the sale of our business gave us the opportunity to do lots of things. You know, we, we were able to make significant donation to a, a fund at QUT called the Learning Potential Fund, which funds um, uh, scholarships for financially disadvantaged students, uh, it was really my wife's suggestion that Mark think about setting up the brewery. She originally was going to buy a hotel that led to working with Michael Conrad, led to buying the building in Dogger Street and, and kicking off what we were doing. Michael, of course, was uh, involved in, 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 in the starting of the That's right. Michael was involved for the first three years of um, Newstead Brewing. And we were, we were most probably Michael's best um, client <laughs> in the sense that we ran all of our um, corporate dinners at uh, his restaurant, which in those days was called Restaurant 2. In fact, we even took uh, Restaurant 2 over to Washington, D.C., to run a series of dinners with um, a partner we had over in over in the US. And Michael's a, a well-known Brisbane restaurateur. That's right. Um, for, for those who are listening elsewhere. When, when the family um, invested in um, Newstead and, and, and got it started, were you aware of the parallels between, say, software and the, the, the stage you're entering the craft brewing industry? To be honest, no, I didn't. I mean, look, when we first started... I had minimal involvement. My wife and I had minimal involvement. It was it was something we would just set up so Mark could have some fun. Um, you know, bearing in mind I was based out of London, so from 2010 until 2018, 
I would be lucky to spend more than 30 nights a year in Australia. Mm -hmm. And most of that would be because I've got two grandkids here in Brisbane. So, you know, we had minimal involvement in the business from when it first started back in 2014 up until when I retired from SAP, which was 2018. So for, for those who are um, possibly not aware of the new said story, it started in Brisbane in 20... 2014. 14, um, yes. it launched. Um, and w w with the much smaller than the, the venue that we're in now, the, the Doggett mm. Street venue that was, I, I think it's fair to say, Brisbane's first proper hospitality focused brew I pub. would think so where it had a you know a pretty solid restaurant and pretty solid chef and you know Michael ran a very strong you know food offering mm. that complemented the beers that we were producing on site and uh, the, the 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 brewery was much more than the production brewery that uh, you, you've moved to here that's right what was your impressions as, as the, the the brewery grew, um, and w were you involved in the? Well, I'd imagine you were involved in the discussions to look at the second venue. Look, we did. I would not say that I knew significant uh, managerial expertise in that. Um, the building at Milton, where anyone who knows Newstead Brewing at Milton, we purchased this building as a family in two thousand three for only one reason, so we could take our 114 staff in Brisbane and have them on one floor of a commercial building. So upstairs was our um, office and downstairs was a warehouse that was leased out initially to Data3 and then to the Queensland Government. Okay. So there was no intent to build a brewery here opposite Suncorp Stadium when we first bought it. It was just serendipity. And, and I believe that even when um, Newstead grew to the size that it was looking at expanding that uh, it was almost an afterthought that you came here that you uh, mark was looking at other yeah we were looking at other buildings around um look at that stage this is sort of after the floods that we had in what was that 2012 2011 yeah 2011 um the queensland government mail office moved out after that um you know we knew that sap would be moving out at the top floor at the end of their lease which was 2013, because they would be moving um, to consolidate all of their staff in Brisbane who would never fit into this building. So it was logical that we were going to have an empty building. And at that stage, there was high vacancy rate all along Coronation Drive because a lot of the gas uh, projects in Curtis Island were coming near the completion. Yeah. And so, you know, we knew occupancy rates or vacancy rates in Milton were going to grow very rapidly, well over 20%. And so we just thought more about the stadium. We thought, you know, the potential to build a brewery on, on the site of a building that we already owned. Again, so looking at what was a bustling um, brew pub um, that, was, that was very successful in Brisbane to moving to a big production brewery, fortunately right next to a, the, the, the major stadium in, in Queensland. Um, but the, everything grew larger um, through that move. Was the business equipped or ready for that that scale growth? No, it wasn't. Um, you know, we've been on a pretty solid learning curve, certainly since I've come in. It's only in the last 18 months that we really understand the costs of goods sold for every beer we brew. Um, you know, we put a lot of discipline into recruiting a CFO who is adding a lot of financial discipline. My wife was doing that previously, you know, part-time, and her background was professional service firms, mm -hmm. not manufacturing. 
So, you know, we got that expertise. We brought in significant expertise into our, into our sales and marketing um, capability. So it's, I would think that, you know, we, we, we really put a lot of effort in, particularly over the last um, two years, yep. on building our capability for running a manufacturing business, which I know nothing about, versus running a professional service firm slash software firm which I know a little bit about. And, and that's interesting. Was it that learning process for the business that it, it's beer production is a different industry? Or Absolutely. Was, it's yeah. a totally different. Like software, you build the software and there's minimal cost to distribute it to your clients. There's no issue of um, the maintenance of the software as opposed to a food product, which can deteriorate, generally does deteriorate over time. So you're not worried about stock, stock control, Inventory is just a non-issue. Um, margins in consulting software are much, much higher than they are in manufacturing. It, you know, I just couldn't think of two different um, industries to work in. It, it's, it's one of the things that I sit back and, and look at um, and spend a lot of time thinking about because there, there was a time in the early days of the craft beer industry that brewers who were getting into it were almost offended that it was described as a fast-moving consumer good you know that um the, the, the big breweries looked at it as something that you get the unit costs down um and, and you, you need to be as efficient as as possible because it was the craft brewing industry that was somehow different i would agree with that matt if I look at mark as a sample one I would think that exactly sums up how Mark thinks about it. You know, he's much more interested in the creativity of building the unique beers that he wants to to um, to develop. Um, I think that you know, when we got to the size of our Milton facility, we needed to add a higher level of financial discipline because you know we're ten times the size of what we had at Docker Street. And you must have been, you, you would have been on. Countable on one hand, the number of breweries that were in Brisbane when Doggett Street opened, and now you're—I think there's 18 or 19 in 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 the city alone. Yep. The world doesn't stand still um, when the others come along, does it? No, I think, and I think that's great for the industry. Um, you know, you know, I massively believe that you know competition improves quality, mm. and you know we've all got to be you know continually getting better at what we do or we won't survive. And I think that's that's good in any business. So looking at what you've learned over the last two years is you've been more, and, and did you step in, uh, I should say, before we uh, talk about what you've learned, did you step in because you'd retired from the original job and you were looking for things to keep occupied? Or Look, it's partly that. When I stepped in initially, it was just as chair, so I didn't really get too actively involved in the first six to 12 months. I think I got more actively involved only in the last 12 months as we hit the COVID um, shutdowns and to give Mark support as we you know, had to navigate how do we run a business when we shut down. Mm. And, and I, I guess hospitality was such a big part of this business with the, the venue right. opposite uh, and there were no games next No door. games, you know, 40% of our revenue just stopped mm. uh, because of our two venues are bigger than most probably what most venues are for craft brewery operations so yes we you know we we need to have um, clarity of thought and financial discipline to navigate our way through the shutdowns and then the partial opening over an extended period of time 
How well was Newstead placed to handle that COVID shutdown? I, I guess you had the capacity to be a, um, a production brewery, but as you say, a big part of your income was hospitality. Did you understand what the business's focus was I when COVID came? I think we did. I mean, fortunately, by the time we shut down what was that in March last year, our, our CFO had been working with us then for at least five months, so we had a great insight into all of our cost structure and we had great insight into, you know, knowing what leaders we had to pull in what we were doing. So I think, um, I think yeah, we, we, we were pretty clear what we had to do. You know, we, like many others, we had um, a lot of beer in kegs, yeah. and we had to decant those kegs and then repackage that into cans. So, you know, that becomes a pretty expensive process when you're selling a discounted carton when you've had to take it out of a keg and put it into a carton. But, you know, it, it helped if we didn't do that then we would have had beer that was um, would have had to been you know thrown out having stepped back in, in into the business is, are there things that when the brewery expanded to, to the second venue that it, it, when you go back and look at it um, now that you would have done differently when you started the the, the Milton venue I, I think yes there's certain th- things we would do different if we know I mean I'm not the personality that sort of agonizes too much about what you do wrong. Um, you know, no one has a perfect way of doing things. But I think, you know, Milton is quite different from Dogger Street. Dogger Street, as a, as a location for a venue, um, overwhelmingly has walk-in traffic from all the high-rise units around uh, Dogger Street and the offices around here. There's no doubt that given the size of Milton and given the lack of, you know, high-rise accommodation in the immediate area... I see Milton as much more a destination. So, you know, it took us a while before we started to realise how much we had to market Milton as a destination outside of game days. Mm. And and that's what we, you know, have been kicking off. Uh, pre Just getting it ready pre-COVID. Obviously, not much point doing too much of it during <laughs> COVID, but we're now launching that in a much bigger way now. But I guess the game day crowd next door at Lang Park then would make this a very different venue than you would probably operate it on the non-game days. It is, yeah. I mean, you know, on a game day, it's all about efficiency of how you're, you know, dispensing beer and, and you still got to think about the service that you're providing mm-hmm. when, when, you're, when you're at capacity, you know. So, but that capacity is about, you know, three hours, you know, from two hours before the game to the game to maybe an hour after the game. But... You know, yes, we we run two different venues, if you like, a game day venue and a non-game day venue. The game day venue would certainly stress test all of your processes. It certainly does, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, sometimes they're broken and we think most times they're not. Like our, our biggest crowd was two years ago when um, Ireland played the Wallabies and I was not here, fortunately, I was in <laughs> London, but, you know, we had 900 people here. So that really pushed the our, our um, limits of what we could do. And how about the production side? We've heard a lot of craft breweries that uh, potentially had a focus on kegs, um, pivot to packaged, and yep. certainly building up their um, their packaged and their wholesale retail business. Has that something that Newstead has been able to do, or you know, does size come into that? Well, we've always done that. Like we've always had a goal of diversification over time, so I'm I'm about how you manage your risk profile. So you know we have something like thirty five percent 
go of, of all our beer is sold through our two venues. Personally, I'd like that to get up to more than 50%. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have some other, you know, strategies of how we're about to launch that as well. Um, you know, we sell packaged beer through the majors, through Coles and Woolworths, and that, you know, is a significant sector of our business. It's, you know, around 40%. So therefore, we've got 20% for independence, both for packaged beer and for keg beer other than through our own two venues. So I actually think we've got a pretty good um, risk diversification if you exclude a total shutdown <laughs> yeah. from, a, from a COVID type if of experience. Exc- if you exclude once-in-a-lifetime co- right. global pandemic. Once in 100 years, you know, <laughs> yeah. pandemic. Uh, well, then they say the same thing about floods. So I, I guess hopefully you're. A well, I've been through a few. I was my wife and I. We were married the weekend after the '74 floods, so we're we're used to floods. <laughs> now you've also um, just this week announced an export opportunity to, yes. and you're sending beer to Hong Kong. That's right, and we're very excited about that. I mean, as you know, I, I've said on a number of other occasions, like I believe exports is a really good test of the quality of what you're doing as a business, you know, because then you've got to compete with other craft beers from around the world. And I think that's a great litmus test as to your quality, your innovation, and your consistency. So, you know, I'm extremely excited about growing our export business. Bearing in mind, you know, when I started my former business 40 years ago, we started in the bedroom under our house where we still live today, 40 years ago. Um, in Pinjarra Hills. So, and then when we sold our business 30 years later, 80% of our revenue was outside Australia mm-hmm. and, and 98% outside Queensland. So exports is part of my DNA and, you know, we're very keen to grow our export as part of our business. Although I guess, as you said, uh, exporting software is a very Much different easier. business. That's than, right. uh, and also, you, you've got a passion for wine, and I often describe wine as being a postcard from where the grapes were grown, whereas a beer is something that, that, that is very, very local. And so you've got a lot of challenges in having an export side to the business because right. beer doesn't travel. I think that also then puts a lot of more focus on the branding because, as we all know, with wine, it's all about terroir. You know, mm. wine is made in the vineyards. It's not made in the winery. Mm. Um, and the best wine very generally at those great seasons where the wine, winemaker has minimal intervention into what they're doing, whereas beer is 100% made in the brewery. Yes. So totally different. So if you want to export a beer, to me, branding is really fundamental to that process. And so tell me about the Newstead brand in terms of positioning itself in somewhere like Hong Kong. I think what we're, we're trying to keep close to our roots. Our roots are that we're a 100% independent family business based here in, in Brisbane. Mm-hmm. So anyone who knows any of our cans will know that the Brisbane River has a key branding component on our cans and that all of our beers are named after locations along the Brisbane River. And so we see the branding for our beers into anywhere overseas, be that Middle East, Hong Kong, um, Japan, South Korea. Our, our, our positioning will be they're buying a reflection of Brisbane when they buy our beer. They're buying Australia, and then after buying Australia, they're buying Brisbane. And, and that's how we will be positioning our export market. 
it, it, it's interesting you say that because straight away I started thinking, well, how much do, you know, internationally I'm always amazed at how little people know about, you, you, you tend to see the macro things like a koala, a kangaroo, the Sydney Opera House or the, the Harbour Bridge are the things that people, or Uluru, um, and they're things that people can grasp straight away. Is there a lot of explanation um, for a brand like Newstead? Do, do, do you think those stories resonate with an international audience? I- I'm not sure they do. I think, you know, we've got to remember that craft beer is not mainstream. So we're not trying mm. to be a Peroni beer out there yep. or, or another, you know, Heineken. We're trying to be a very boutique, unique, individual beer. So we will be the sort of beer that someone will buy in Hong Kong who is searching out for something different. I don't think that we're going to be sold by a photo of Uluru. We're going to be sold because show me something really unique and different that I haven't tried before. Um, I'm minded of the comment you made earlier that you know you you had to establish a business um, in, in software by teaching people uh, to to start with. Um, you know, critter wines are a much easier sell, sell. You know, and I imagine critter beers would be easier um, than having to try and educate that market. Yeah, I think. Well, fortunately, there is a global trend towards craft independent breweries so you know i don't think that we as a family will be doing too much of the education of the market overseas on craft beer i think there's a big enough market segment that we can get a a fraction of that uh, market segment that already knows what how craft is different from international beers and are after the you know unique experience of it that a craft beer provides when you started talking about diversification, you used the word risk, which isn't something that I'd actually considered. But of course, the risk diversification is a big part of that. Exporting to a country or to a state like China, um, obviously, there's a you know it's quite tumultuous right. um, at the moment, even outside of the pandemic. And uh, I'd imagine that there would be a fair bit of risk in choosing that market to to begin the export into. Yes, I would be quite worried if any one country represented more than, you know, 5% of our, of our total business. But I don't expect to see exports to ever be more than, you know, 10, 15% of our total business. But I, I, part of my DNA, I do think about risk diversification. Mm-hmm. And I think of that in, in Newstead Brewing in terms of our own venues and what we have, you know, control of the distribution I think about it through sponsored products and partnerships like Goma, uh, and I think about it through um, relationship with the majors, and I also think about it through relationship with independent um, craft stores, etc., and craft bars. So, you know, I want a balanced portfolio of where we distribute our beer through. Now, I know uh, when we spoke briefly off mic, you said that. Not only are you a wine drinker, but you're a substantial wine collector as well. Um, have you got any involvement in making wine, or you purely? No, I don't. I'm purely, I'm purely a consumer. <laughs> um, but I'm, I, I have Scottish heritage, so my main focus is to buy wine at the cheapest possible time I can, <laughs> which is when it first come out. Store it for you know, if it's red, twenty to forty years. Mm-hmm. And, you know, drink my red wines somewhere between 20 and 40 years of, of cellaring. Um, but drinking it when I bought it at the price. I, I can still remember I bought my first Grange for $9 a bottle from <laughs> Farmer Brothers in Canberra. 
Uh, I can remember when the 1990 vintage came out, I went around uh, 15 bottle shops in, in Brisbane where I managed to secure, you know, 12 cases at an average of $115 a bottle, you know, which I guess, you know, yeah, wine has grown to an international price mm. for their high end. Um, you know, beer doesn't quite have that level of premium. Um, but I think, you know, yeah, I, 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 I guess I just think of wine as personally my hobby. I, I like rugby. I like wine. I don't dri- drive cars, expensive cars. <laughs> I've never been into horse racing. I've never been into gambling. I've never been into sailing. So wine is most probably the one place where I do spend some money. Wine, but and, and that's one of the things that fascinates me is that if you've got a winery that is making highly acclaimed wine, um, there's only a limited ability that they can uh, to expand supply. And so the, the, the price goes up. Um, beer, on the other hand, you can be the best, most consistent brewer in the world. And the expectation is that you make more of it as opposed to you, you, you put the price up. I think that's right. I think, you know, that's where I think the difference is between um, beer and wine. You know, like, as I said, you know, wine is made in the vineyard mm. and there's a finite amount of wine you can make. Beer is much more of an incredibly high-end scientific process. But I think it doesn't have the same degree of price premium that uh, w- wine can have. Do you think that brewers can lock in more of a price premium or is the price set by consumer expectations you know the 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 $22.4 pack for example and you know whilst that will creep up a little bit we're not going to be able to see brewers through making beer that excites or even their brand positioning you know edges that up to a $26.4 pack. Yeah I think they can grow it but there is a limit to how much you can grow I mean I'd look at some of the really esoteric Belgian beers and, you know, that gives you an idea of what the high-end price point can be. Mm. But I think any brewery anywhere in the world can aspire to move their price point up by making more unique and more interesting beers, if that's their, if that's their business strategy. It, it, it's interesting that you say that about uh, Belgian beers because I, I guess particularly the ones that take 6, 12, 18 months the, the the costs um, are going up on there, and when when you speak to Belgian brewers, they still talk about how, and particularly if you drink in Belgium, um, how cheap those beers are, even compared to, yeah. to to wine. But then again, if you travel through Italy and France, wine is much cheaper as well. True. Look, I think the beer industry can still learn from the wine industry. I think we've got to think about the uniqueness of of the breweries. How do they differentiate? That differentiates themselves to not a commodity. And I think what craft breweries in Australia do a good job at is becoming part of their local community. And I think actually they must probably do that better than even some many of the wineries do because wineries try to sort of have this export or national um, distribution. Whereas I think, you know, I think breweries do have a much stronger community DNA. Would As a layperson, that would be my observation. Mm. I talk about, whereas wine has the terroir that you mentioned, uh, you know, based on the soil, I talk about be having a cultural terroir. It grows up in, a, in, in the culture of where it's made, and that can be very different. Yeah, I think that's a great metaphor. Yeah, I agree with that totally. 
So tell us about where, um, now that you've been back in, or you've been in the business now for two years, um, tell us what the future for Newstead is. A little bit of um, exporting. I believe you know, Mark has um, formed a, a separate brand within the family of companies, um, working title that he's That's going right. to be concentrating so on. So we're, we're trying to, you know, have a, a different approaches, you know, one of the many management textbooks I've read over the last, you know, 30 years, one was by a guy called Christensen out of um, Harvard University called The Innovator's Dilemma. And uh, yeah. I think about, you know, brewing is a bit like The Innovator's Dilemma. You know, when you've got a capacity to brew three million litres a year, as we do here at Milton, um, you know, it's about production processes, controls, monitoring and you don't have the same level of innovation as if you're producing 60,000 litres per year. So, you know, Mark is, is, is leading the family at the innovation end of um, beer production. So through working title, he'll be doing much more edgier beers and much more, you know, unique beers than what we're doing under the Newstead portfolio. So that's where we see them being complementary sort of brands, if you like. And that'll become a bit of a proving ground for potential... And it will things. be, yeah, potentially proving ground for beers that might migrate into a bit more of a mainstream period, yeah. And and how about your future? You, you, you've you semi-retired, well, you've retired from software in, into uh, brewing. Um, how, how long do you plan to... Uh... Um, well, I don't think I'm ever the sort of person who could fully retire. So, you know, I'm building a management team here that can manage it with minimal involvement by me, so... I, I definitely use that cliche, I work on the business, I don't work in the business. So, you know, all of my time here is about working with individual managers and team members in terms of, you know, really understanding their KPIs, understanding their, their strengths and weaknesses, their development plans. So, you know, my wife most probably wouldn't want me home too often. Um, <laughs> you know, our plans is to spend, you know, a minimum of one week a, a month based out of Sunshine Beach, where we've been for the last 30 years. Um, we will still have plans for the next 10 years to spend a minimum of two months or two sets of two months overseas. And, you know, I think we can still do that while still being actively involved in running Newstead as well. After a long career in business, um, and you've obviously brought a lot of the things you've learned in other businesses to your time at Newstead and injected that in, what have you learned about business from running the brewery? Um, well, I've certainly learned about low margin businesses, you know. I've certainly learned about manufacturing and, you know, and I've learned about the, you know, foodstuff businesses, you know, in terms of stock that has a, a limited lifespan. You know, they're not concepts that I really thought about to any degree before three years ago. You know, it's, it's one thing to know it, but it's another thing to really own what the implications of all that is. And what advice would you give um, some of the best uh, um, feedback that we've gotten is from people who love the idea of owning a brewery, but we talk them out because uh, by making them realise that it's not the romance, there's a lot of uh, uh, a lot of challenge in, involved in doing that. If, if somebody was hell-bent on opening a brewery based on your experience with Newstead, what advice would you give? Look, I don't give them the advice I gave both our kids as they were growing up. You, you must be driven by your passion for what you want to do. Don't go into something just because you think it's profitable or it's status. You know, you must love what you're doing. So 
I would say to anyone, go with your passion and, you know, if you stick at it, I think it's more about the stickability than any other thing. I see business as being a marathon. You know, if you can stick at it consistently year in, year out, let it grow. And I, you know, I don't like venture capitalists. I much prefer, you know, businesses that grow within retained earnings, you know, so grow slowly. Don't, don't try to grow too quickly. Um, you know, prove yourself and grow over time. That sounds like good advice for everyone. Peter House, thank you very much for this conversation about beer. Thank you, Matt. And that was Peter House. Peter will be receiving a Yeti Rambler mug exclusive to our Beer as a Conversation guests. Radio Brews News is proudly presented by Cryo Malt. With over 25 years in the field, Cryo Malt is dedicated to providing the finest brewing ingredients to help brewers create the foundations of a truly excellent beer. They are your premium brewing partner and proud sponsors of Brews News Week and the entire Radio Brews News channel.